As we come to the end of this passage on the armor of God and spiritual warfare, and we get to this passage uh, at the end of it about prayer, I am reminded of a day in probably 1983 when I was at the grocery store with my mother, walking along behind her, doing what the normal thing that a kid does. A little kid says, I want that sugary cereal. No, you can't have it. I want those cookies. No, you can't have it. And we were walking through the toy aisle. Do they still have that? I don't think they do, but it was a genius move. There was toys everywhere. And I remember looking up and seeing this plastic tank, like an army tank, and saying, can I have that? And I don't know if my mom was strategically thinking it would buy her some time to clean the house or something, or if she was just worn down, or if she was just feeling extra kind, but she said, sure. And she took it, and we bought it. We went home, and I opened the package, and I was so elated and surprised to find that there's a little flip-up thing in the front, and in it were little army guys, uh, like a bonus gift. I wish I had it to show you, but obviously, after all these years, uh, I've done away. <laughs> I'm kidding. I don't get rid of things. Here it is right here. <laughs> it's had to be uh, screwed back together a little bit, but uh, I handed it down to my son like a sword that had slain our enemies or something. But uh, there's a little guy here in the top, but in the front, we've got all these different army guys. I remember being so just enamored of all the different designs. So you got like this standard guy here holding a pistol. You got this guy who's crouched down with some kind of big, heavy-duty machine gun. Uh, this is, oh, I found that in my backyard. That's not one of them. This guy's like throwing a grenade. This guy is standing firm like we read in the scriptures there. Oh, a mortar guy. He's dropping mortars in, uh, shooting kind of missiles. This guy's crawling, crawling along. Uh, and, and then we got another machine gun guy. This guy's, this guy's got a uh, metal detector. He must be sweeping for landmines. And then I remember coming across this dude. Now, I'm sure you can't see him very well from where you are, so let me tell you what he's doing. This guy's on the phone. He's talking on the phone, and I remember going, wait a minute, what? We got all these guys with all these weapons making war for uh, the... the Access of righteousness over here. And then this guy's off on his own, just chatting it up on the telephone. And I said to my dad, why, oh, why is there a guy on the phone? And my dad got real serious because he's a war buff. He's, uh, World War II, Civil War, you know how dads are. Um, and, and he said, well, that was one of the most important jobs anyone could have. It was also one of the most dangerous there were guys who were in charge of communications. There were guys who would go through enemy fire and run telephone line. There were guys who'd have to go up to a high place so they could get a signal. But in order to win a war, you have to have clear communication with command. And you have to have communication with each other. So this is one of the most important jobs that there was. And I went from like hiding it away like, I don't want the guys who are just on the phone in my army, to putting them back where they belong, right in the midst of all the other guys. This reminds me of the end of this passage because we have been talking about the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation forever now, and now we get to the heart of things. Communication with command. Because even with all the armor on, if a soldier is cut off from the general, from those who are issuing the orders and coordinating things, he's in trouble. And in the NIV, you know, there's a new paragraph here. It's period, full stop at the end of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then it says, and pray always in the Spirit. 
And I got to say, that is a mistake. There should not be a new paragraph there. And here in the ESV, there's not even a new sentence. And that is the way it should be. Because this isn't a new topic. It's not a new command. Pray. It's not an imperative. It's actually what's called a participle. It's modifying something that came before. And it's modifying what all of this armor stuff has been modifying. The command, stand firm, having girded your loins with the truth, and having shod your feet, and having put on the breastplate, and received the helmet, and the sword, all these things, and now praying, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So this is not a, a new idea in the, in the epistle. It's a shame that we often present this as if Paul has moved on from spiritual warfare and the weapons of spiritual warfare to a new topic entirely. Rather, prayer is the climax of his treatment of spiritual warfare. And if we miss that, we've missed the whole point of the end of this epistle. He gives more space to this aspect of spiritual warfare than to any individual piece of armor thus far. More than righteousness, more than faith, even more than the word of God. The question might come up, though, if this is part of the whole spiritual warfare discussion, why isn't it assigned a piece of the armor? I even said to you that there was a missing weapon, right? The other offensive weapon, the javelin, which was a normal part of the panoply that any Roman legionnaire would have. And, and it would be fitting if he said the javelin of prayer, right? What do you do with a javelin? You throw it. And we even have, going back to the Puritans and earlier, this idea of arrow prayers, prayers that are just tossed up quickly to God as if they were a, a spear or, or something that shoots quickly and, and without a whole lot of thought, but, but just in perhaps uh, a, a sense of, of desperation to our God. Why doesn't he say the javelin of prayer? And I think the answer is because this isn't just another weapon added to the armor. This is something that permeates every piece of the armor. And without it, every piece of the armor is going to fall flat. Next week, we have on the schedule, we're going to sing that old hymn, that classic, stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. And there's a line in that hymn, put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer, where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. Put on each piece with prayer. Because without prayer, what good is the sword of the Spirit? I'm reading, but not prayerfully. I'm reading, but with my own sense of cognition and my own human wisdom. That's not going to be an effective weapon. If I'm not in prayer, my faith is going to be in a flag. The shield is going to get heavy and it's going to start to sink down. Without prayer, the righteousness that I wear is going to slowly transform into my own righteousness, my own sense of merit before God. Prayer is what keeps us grounded in the sense that we are recipients always and continually of God's holy, perfect grace and mercy. So how important, then, is prayer? I think St. Paul goes way out of his way to answer this question and to hammer it home, because four times in this one verse, he uses the word all. In fact, he uses four slightly different forms of the word pan or pan. You've heard that a lot lately, pandemic. That means it's all places. It's gone now everywhere. Pan-oply, the, all the armor that you wear, the whole thing. 
And in this, if I even read it to you in Greek, even if you had no sense of what to make of biblical Greek, you'd hear the repetition here. Passes panti. Passe. Pantone. You go, okay, I got it. What are you trying to say? Like you, you, you can hear there's something being hammered home, and it's all, 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 all. And so I think we, we see this breaking itself up very naturally into the answers to a few questions, and the answers to each of the questions is essentially all. Let's start with the question, what to pray? What, what, what kind of prayers are we talking about? Well, he says, all prayers. All prayers and supplications. And what you have there is kind of the square or rectangle thing. All supplications are prayers, but not all prayers are supplications. Supplication means entreating, asking humbly to receive something from God. That's not all kinds of prayers. But all kinds of prayers here is what we're commanded to offer. All prayers. Prayers with brothers and sisters together in the home. Prayer uh, public in worship. Private prayer in your closet at home, as Jesus said. Formal prayers recited from memory, extemporaneous prayers that just come up, composed on the spot. Long and flowery prayers where you pour out your heart to God and tell him how great he is, short and to the point, shot to heaven like a dart, like we said, those arrow prayers. Prayers that are out loud, prayers that are silent and in your head and in your heart. Prayers that are sung as you drive down the street. Prayers that are written down as you journal. Petitions, confessions, thanksgiving, supplication, intercession for other believers. And as he says, all prayers and supplications, that reminds us that there's an awful lot of different kinds of supplication. What are we asking God for? Have we gotten into a rut there? God, give me what I need. Is it all me, 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 me? That is not the proper approach to prayer. We're encouraged here to pray for a variety of things, all supplications. This means it's not just huge things. God bless the whole world. That covers everything. Amen. I guess I'm done. But also things that are limited and specific. As Paul says here, pray for me that in the opening of my mouth, I'll be given words to say and the boldness to say them. That's a very specific thing, and he's asking for them to pray for that specific thing. And yet, we know that the apostles were praying big, audacious prayers, remembering that their God is omnipotent, as our God is omnipotent. All supplications. Pray for perseverance, for guidance, for wisdom, for humility. Have you limited your sphere of what you pray for? to just a few things, because those are the things that are either on your mind or are comfortable for you, or, or just you've fallen into a rut, break out of it. Pray with all prayer and supplication. The next question that comes up is when to pray. His answer, all times. In all times. D.L. Moody said, if you have so much business to attend to that you have no time to pray, depend upon it, you have more business on hand than God ever intended you should have. That means when someone says, I'm so busy, I, I struggle to pray, and it's like a spiritual flex, you're backwards in your thinking. You need to repent of that if you're too busy to pray. I think it was Philip Yancey had that book, Too Busy Not to Pray. It's a great book showing that the more we are trying to accomplish, the more time we need to spend on our knees before our Savior. Luther once said, I have so much to do today, I can afford to spend no less than three hours in prayer. This calls to mind, of course, uh, St. Paul's words in the epistle to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing, which always seems like kind of an impossible thing to obey, 
makes me think of, uh, who does that, monks, right? In a monastery, all of life is ordered around these times of prayer. You've got, like, lauds, uh, vespers in the evening, in between there's terse sex nuns, uh, Kempel. There's, there's all these, I'm missing some. Like, there's so many. Because they're praying at 4.30 a.m., they're praying at midnight, they're praying every time in between. But what makes monks different from everyone else is that they've withdrawn from society, so they can basically do nothing but pray. You and I can't, right? We've got other things to do. And, you know, if we're only talking about the words between Heavenly Father and Amen, even these monks aren't praying without ceasing. Yeah, they get together a ton of times during the day, but then they go and they wash dishes and they plant gardens and they serve the poor and they do all these other things. So what we're talking about is clearly not doing nothing but pray. Jesus didn't live that way. Paul, who's admonishing that, didn't live that way. He did all sorts of other things. In fact, as we read of Paul's adventures in the book of Acts, we find only seven times specifically we're told that he said, okay, let's, let's pray, like stop everything and let's pray. And one of them is in the Philippian jail. Like, what choice do you have? You're locked up, may as well sing hymns and pray. And so that's what he and Barnabas do. I think, you know, perhaps seven times is significant because seven is the number of completion, totality. But I think that more importantly, we have to realize that in all of the other things he did, whether he was floating for a day and a night on the open sea after a shipwreck, whether he's teaching and preaching, casting out demons, debating the rabbis in the synagogue, he's praying in the midst of all of these things. That he's praying, he's in a disposition of prayer, just like you think without ceasing. I mean, I know some people who don't, but most of us think without ceasing. So we ought to be praying without ceasing, meaning without bringing a full stop to it. Pause. Hold that thought. We're continually in conversation with our God. And perhaps better than all times would be every season. And pantekairo, you know that Greek word like kairos, right? In every season, on every occasion, maybe. So praying when things are going well, when things are falling apart, when things aren't doing anything interesting, they're soul-suckingly boring, and you're just trying to get through the rest of the day so that you can go home. Pray in all of those situations. Jesus' brother James really hammers that home in James chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. In other words, whatever's going on, happy, sad, sick, whatever, pouring out your heart to God is what should be our natural inclination, our reaction. Now, when do we do these things? I fear that for most Christians, or at least for many modern evangelicals, the answer is only when all else has failed. In fact, when I worked in the, the Christian bookstore, I remember seeing things that said, like t-shirts, when all else fails, pray. And it was supposed to be a good idea. Or those like canvas Bible covers embroidered with stuff that everyone had in the 90s. I, I remember seeing those. When all else fails, pray. That's, that's how atheists work. Right? I mean, I, I've known atheists who will admit from time to time in a desperate situation, in great difficulty to throw a, a prayer up. Congratulations, then. We're praying like atheists? This reminds me very much of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when he would say, what are you doing more than the heathen? The Gentiles do that. The heathen do that. Well, yeah, we, we pray only when all else fails. Find me a group of people who don't do that. 
Rather, we're to take every opportunity, every season, every chance we have to pray, grab it, and do it. First resort, not last resort. Last week, uh, Brian brought up the idea of telling people, I'll pray for you. He said it was the biggest lie. I'll pray about that. I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. And, and that's very much true, I think, in the church today, that one of the most common lies you will hear is, I'll pray for that. And maybe, maybe you have every intention of following through, but I think a lot of the time we know it's just the thing to say, and we say it without thinking. We say it without saying, okay, when am I going to pray for that? Maybe I should write that down. How am I going to remember to do what I just committed to doing? Because what I just committed to doing is huge. It's taking something before the God of the universe, the God who spoke everything into existence out of nothing and asking him to help in this situation. And I think the solution, at least in the church, and I mean in the church building, is to banish that phrase. Don't ever say it. Oh, I'll pray for that. If somebody says it, maybe lightly slay them in the spirit. Just a little. If, if you do that and you get slayed back, don't come to me. It's, a, you know, at your own discretion and, and all that stuff. But listen, we don't want to say, I'll pray for that. When are you going to do that? Oh, when the time comes. You're already in church. Is there a better time to pray? I get it if you run into someone at Target and they look a little upset and you're like, are you okay? And they say, I'm struggling with these things. And you say, I'll pray for that. Maybe if you prayed right there in the aisle at Target, they'd feel weird or something. I don't know. But in church, praying at your pew, praying in the hallway, praying in the library, praying outside as you're visiting, whatever the case, what's likely to happen? Other believers are going to see you praying and come and join you. That's what's likely to happen. And if you're here at Judson on a Sunday, you'll probably be joined by people from at least one, maybe two or three other uh, congregations from two or three other traditions and continents and now we've got a lot of people praying together. Isn't that what we want? How much emphasis do we put on prayer? That shows what we really think about it. If we really believe that it is powerful. If we really believe it is effective. On Tuesday, when we left our very, very long elder board meeting, there was a, a, a prayer service going on in the chapel. It was the... Uh, Splendor of Glory Pentecostal Church that uses that, build, that part of the building. Uh, and they were praying and praying and praying. They were just getting done when we were getting done. Thursday, I came back here in the evening. They were starting another prayer service. They were getting together to pray and pray and pray. And then when they're done with that, they pray some more. And then when they're done with that, you know what they did? They cleaned everything up, including cleaning the bathrooms. And I thought that was the coolest thing. Serving and praying hand in hand. We have to re-elevate prayer in our midst if we really want to ever see revival, if we want to feel God's presence in our lives more than it is now. The way to bring God's presence into our lives is to enter his presence through prayer. Remember, Paul said he is not far from all of you. You can reach out and touch him. Often we feel like we can't pray because we've wronged him, we're not on the best of terms, and we think, i got to deal with that first, then I can pray. The only way to deal with that is through prayer. And so it makes no sense to think I can't really pray right now because I have to get right with God. Get on your knees and pray. 
If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you, cleanse you of all unrighteousness, and now keep on praying. You're right with God. It reminds me a bit of how I'll put off phone calls. Anybody else here do this? I don't know why. I don't mind talking on the phone, but I hate making phone calls. And sometimes I will like transfer a phone call that I need to really make from one to-do list to the next, from one day to the next, even from one week to the next. And then I'll go, all right, I should just do this. And it'll take 90 seconds. And I'll go, what the world? The enemy wants you stuck in that, well, you know what, I'll deal with that, that distance I'm feeling from God later. I'll put it off to later. I'll put it off to later. Meanwhile, it's getting further and further and further because you have been longer and longer out of his presence, longer and longer in sin. Prayerlessness is sin. And you need only to say, I'm going to take two minutes and I'm going to confess my sins. And now this weight will be lifted from my shoulders. But the enemy wants to distract us from prayer. Just as much, if not more, than he wants to separate us from the scriptures. He wants us to love the idea of prayer. Right? For that to stand in for actually praying. For us, when someone talks about, for example, that that Pentecostal church meeting again and again in prayer meetings and long prayer meetings and, and praying fervently for us to kind of nod solemnly and go, that's great. Good for them. Prayer really is powerful, isn't it? I approve. Even while actually praying is a tiny, little, insignificant part of our actual lives. It ought to be a huge aspect of what it means for us to follow Jesus. Yeah, somebody, what does it mean to follow Jesus? They often say, well, I try to keep all the commandments. You know, I try to read my Bible. I try to, and, and you go, hold on, are you, are you not in continual communication back and forth with this God who supposedly is the center of your life? You don't have this guy in your army? This is not part of the armor you're wearing? We need to repent of that as soon as we recognize that it is happening. You think I've been going a long time on the armor of, of God. Yeah, I mean, I, I admit I have. But let me tell you, William Grinnell, the great Puritan, he wrote the definitive work called The Christian Incomplete Armor. And in the tiny little two-column text, it is 1,200 pages long. On what is this, five to seven verses? 300 pages are on prayer. One verse. That's how significant he sees this, and I think he was correct. Satan's going to try to convince you that you don't really have the gift, that it's just not your thing. Other people, prayer comes easy, and it's really rewarding, and it's good for them. They can do it, but I'll just do it a little bit, because I'm not gifted in that way. Listen, there are four main lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, if you count the one in Ephesians, which seems to be different offices that people can inhabit. And none of those lists prayer as a spiritual gift. You know why? It's not one. It's not something given particularly to one group of Christians more than others. It is a lifestyle which all followers of Jesus are commanded and expected to practice. Practice. I don't feel like I'm good at prayer. All right, practice. Practice makes perfect. Anybody here ever read the book Practice of the Presence of God? Brother Lawrence? Aaron and I were reading it together. I, I, we didn't quite finish it, I don't think. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating book. It's this monk, 
And so he's living in one of these settings where it's like church service, church service, church service, prayer meeting, church service, throughout the day and night. And yet, as he writes about his prayer life, he talks about things that happen in the kitchen where he's serving. He's practicing the presence of God in that he's washing a pot. Lord, help me wash out this pot. And then it turns him to spiritual thoughts. He's washing the inside of the pot. Lord, help me to be clean on the inside, not just on the outside, like Jesus taught that the, the hypocrites are. Then he's praying, Lord, help me not to burn the, the lob- lobsters. No, monks aren't eating the lobsters. Whatever mush they're eating. Right? He, he's praying continually because he's in God's presence. That is what prayer without ceasing looks like. So that is when to pray. Where to pray. Well, that's implied here. Not just in church, obviously, if we're not only praying on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whenever you're here. He doesn't specifically say in all places, but I think that is implied when he says all seasons, because different seasons bring you different places. Plus, when he says in the Spirit, that's a location. And I don't mean a physical location, but it calls to mind This discussion that Jesus had with the woman at the well when she said, hold on, where should we be worshiping? Where should we be praising God and talking to God? On our mountain or on your mountain, in your temple? Fix this up for me. I want to understand it. And Jesus said, the time is coming and has now come when you're going to worship God, not on this mountain or that mountain or in your temple or in our temple, but in spirit and in truth. So when we're told here to pray in the spirit, that does tell us that we can pray anywhere. You can pray in traffic. You can pray in the shower. You can pray when you are scraping the, the uh, paint off the front of your garage. That's something I need to do soon. You can pray everywhere. It's always an opportunity for prayer. What does it mean that we're in the Spirit? Well, what Jesus seemed to mean was that we are praying in keeping with God's will and through His help. And that also seems to be what Paul means when he says this sort of thing. Sockman described it well, I think, when he said that the true intention of prayer is that we use prayer as a boatman uses a boat hook. That he's on the boat, and he reaches out, and he pulls the boat to shore. He's not trying to pull the shore to the boat. And in prayer, we're often, I think, trying to pull the shore to the boat. We're saying, okay, God, who is eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, the beginning and the end, Let me change you a bit and pull you to my way of seeing things rather than connecting to our God and pulling so that we will be aligned with his will. That's praying in the spirit. It's tempting, I think, to emphasize how prayer is simply talking to a close friend. You know, when someone says, I have a hard time praying, well, is it hard to just chat with a buddy? But when I talk to one of you, I'm just I'm just talking to you. I'm telling you what's on my mind. You're telling me what's on your mind. And it's simple. In prayer, there is far more at play. Yes, you are talking to a friend. We know Jesus said, I now call you friends. But we are approaching also the the God of the universe, the triune and all-powerful God, praying to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. And that is important. When I talk to you, I'm just blah, I'm just saying whatever. You can tell that, right? When we're chatting, man, I, I find myself going through all sorts of crazy roller coasters of different topics when I'm chatting with people. My, is it free association city? And yet when we are approaching the God of heaven and earth, praying to the Father through the Son in the Spirit, 
It is important to remember that it is a great honor. When I'm done with this, we're going to be looking uh, at Esther. I'm going to preach through the book of Esther. And in that book, we see the fear with which even the king's wife would approach the king unbidden. Well, we can approach the king far greater than the king of Persia, the king of the universe, always bidden, always boldly. And so we come in the spirit and pray that he would be lifted up in all that we do. And notice that both the word of God in verse 17 and prayer here in verse 18 are tied to the operation of the Holy Spirit. This conversation has got to be in the spirit both ways if it's going to do anyone any good. In verse 17, we saw the power of God's word to us. Here we see the power of our words to God, but not the power of our own words from our own flesh and our own selves, rather the power that comes from praying in the spirit. Now we ask, how do we pray? And Paul answers, alert in all perseverance. Being alert in all perseverance. I'm reminded of how Jesus called his disciples to be alert and watchful, to keep watch with him while he's praying at Gethsemane. And he kept finding even his top guys asleep, asleep at the wheel, on the most important night of their lives together. And he said, could you not watch with me for even one hour? I think that is kind of a danger of relegating prayer to the end of the day. There's an advantage to it. You can think through your whole day and you can say, okay, God, how... For some of us, there's no chance of falling asleep even when we want to. But, but if you tend to nod off while praying, okay, fine, that's a good way to fall asleep in communion with your God. But make sure you are taking time elsewhere in your day to pray so that you're giving him the best the first fruits not just what's left over could you not watch with me even a quarter of an hour jesus might ask some of us if we nod off after only a short time of prayer but this this verb to be alert it's the same verb used in mark 13 when he's saying be alert and watchful for no one knows the day or the hour of the son's return not even the son himself but only the father in this context, though, we're not alert because we're unaware of God's timing. We're alert because we are aware of Satan's strategies. We're aware that we have an enemy and we must be on guard. 1 Peter 5, 8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And one of the main strategies that he uses is keeping us from prayer. What is a predator going to do? Even, a, even an apex predator like a lion is not going to rush right into the middle of the wildebeest and say, bring it on, I'll fight all of you. No, looking for a straggler. Someone cut off from the strength that comes from being in the group. If we're cut off from the strength that comes from being connected to our God, that is step one. That is a main strategy of our enemy, keep us in prayerlessness, and then use the shame of that prayerlessness to keep us feeling like we can't go to our God in prayer, even to confess our prayerlessness. When you say it out loud, it sounds so stupid, and yet it works for him so well. Then he will play up doubt that we might have in our hearts. After all, you know, you've prayed for this before and it didn't work. Is it even worth doing? Is anyone even hearing this? Is it bouncing off the ceiling? play up our wandering minds and short attention spans, distract us with sinful thoughts or just trivial thoughts. Oh, I got to do that tomorrow. Oh, I got to. Oh, I was praying. That's right. 
And so he tells us to be alert and pray in all perseverance. It takes perseverance to pray. It takes perseverance not to get distracted in prayer. It takes perseverance to come to God again and again, day after day, until it becomes second nature. This is the only time we have this word for perseverance in the Bible, by the way. But in the book of Acts, we have the verbal form, persevere. And it's translated this way in the ESV, in Acts 1.14. All of these, meaning all of the Christians, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Devoting themselves to prayer. Same word comes up in Romans 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And he's not talking about the when there, he's talking about the how. The ASV says continuing steadfastly in prayer. That's how we pray. Be alert and pray steadfastly. You think this little guy here ever got distracted while he was making these calls? Okay, hold on, I need an airstrike here. We need an evac for these wounded guys here. I'm sorry, I, I just spaced out. No, constant in prayer means remembering the significance, the weight, the import of what we are doing when we come before the God of the universe. And finally, for whom do we pray? And the answer that he gives is for all the saints. This is what we call intercession. And there is nothing more Christ-like than interceding on behalf of someone else. This is what Christ came to do. In fact, this is who Christ is. Hebrews 7.25, Christ, our high priest, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What does Christ live to do? Intercede for us. Intercede at the right hand of the Father. To be like Christ then means that we live to intercede for others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face, that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me, is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died. The face of a forgiven sinner. This is a happy discovery for the Christian who begins to pray for others. And I think it's a discovery that a lot of Christians have yet to make. We tend to pray for people that we spend a lot of time with and, and are real close to and click and connect with. He says pray for all the saints. Again, thinking back to the words of Christ when he said, Oh, you greet only your friends? What are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Well, you might say you pray for only your friends and family. Everyone does that. Not just those who are following Jesus. No soldier is going to go into battle without praying. They say that, right? No atheists in foxholes. Well, if someone is going to pray going into battle, there's no way he or she is going to pray just for themselves. They'll pray for their brothers in arms, starting with those closest to them. They pray for the whole army all the way up to the top because if they have individual success but the army is defeated, the whole thing is lost anyway. And I would suggest if you don't know what to pray for, you say, I try to pray but I run out of things in just a few minutes. You're probably not being very alert or watchful, not paying attention to what's going on in your city, in your neighborhood, in your church, in the church at large around the world, or even in your own home. 
I can't imagine running out of things to pray once we begin to open our eyes to all the need around us. The more we know about our brothers and sisters in Christ, the more urgency we will feel to prayer. Right? If, if things are going fine for me, I might tend to think, I don't need to pray all that much. But if my own health is good and my child is horribly sick, I'm going to be spending time in fervent prayer, right? But what if it's not my child, but someone else's? That's still an occasion for fervent prayer. What if it's not our country, but another? When, when we begin to think about the fact that our God is king of the universe and calls us to come to him with prayer so that we might see him move his hand, we cannot run out of things to pray. And pray without ceasing becomes, well, a necessity. So yes, we have to open our eyes and be watchful. Colossians 4, which is kind of a sister epistle to Ephesians, by the way, he says more or less the same thing. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That means not just being watchful in that we're looking for Christ's return and Satan's schemes, but also looking for every opportunity to pray. Praying for all the saints. This includes, of course, first and foremost, the members of our particular fellowship those who are closest to you. We pray for one another. Just like how I said on the battlefield, every Roman legionary was not just protecting himself with his shield, but the people next to him. That's how it worked. They interlocked, and they became an impenetrable unit. From there, it goes out and out and out, and we pray for our church and churches locally and all And I'll tell you what, we all four congregations meeting here in this building ought to be praying for each other. I know for a fact. I speak like muy, muy poco Spanish, but I hear Judson coming out of their prayers all the time. They're praying for us. Are we praying for them? Are you praying for them? Are you praying for the Nepali congregation that comes in to worship right after we do? Are you praying for the Swahili language service that is taking place? There's so much ministry happening here, and we should be praying for one another. And like Paul, I will ask you to pray for me. And I'll have people tell me frequently, I pray for you every day, and I can tell they're telling the truth because you don't bring that up if you're not doing it. You think, oh, I should pray for this kid every day. But I'll tell you what, if you want a better pastor, and you should want a better pastor, the best way to get one is to pray for the one you have. That God will be at work in me. And I'm praying for you as well. Praying together, thinking in terms, not individualistically, but thinking in terms of the body of Christ. Or in this military setting that we have here in Ephesians 6, of the entire army of God. You know, there's this parable in Luke 18 where Jesus talks about the, the lowly tax collector who beats his breast in the temple and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he contrasts him with a Pharisee who's praying openly in the temple. And we always focus and emphasize his, his haughtiness, his pride, his lack of spiritual poverty. And that's seemingly what Jesus was emphasizing as well. But there's a detail that he gives us, and he doesn't give it to us for no reason. Jesus tells uh, his, his hearers, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. He was praying by himself. Or another translation says, a Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God probably wants to hear about me on account of I'm awesome. Well, pray for others. Lift up others. 
Think of others more important than yourself, according to the Apostle. And as with any discipline, a guaranteed way to drop the ball is to isolate yourself and think you'll do it just from your own willpower and I'll get it done, though I, I can do it, no problem. I've seen a lot of other people fail at it, but I can do it. This is why like, Weight Watchers is such an explosively successful thing, right? This is why having a gym membership is the way to, to make sure you show up and do the work and someone's going to call you if you skip leg day. This is why covenant eyes is such a great thing for Christian men to have, to say, I'm linked up with other men to make sure I don't fall into this kind of sin that's so prevalent in our culture. In addition, we have this wonderful positive motivation from Matthew 18. Again, I say to you, Jesus says, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Whoa. That means we ought to be praying together. Two people praying together, great. Three people, great. A lot of people, great. Praying alone in our closets, great. Praying when you're driving down the road, great. Are we praying people? It makes no sense to try to work toward church growth of some kind, or even to train for evangelism like we're going to at the end of the month if we're not praying people. We need to be meeting together to pray. We need to be praying for our church, praying for our city, Oh, good grief, this city needs prayer. There's so much violence. There's so much uh, uh, injustice. There's so much to pray for. Praying for the churches. Praying for this country. Have you ever thought maybe we're in a difficult time right now, even in the whole world? Are we praying more than we were before all this started? Or are we becoming kind of numb to it all and just used to it? The scripture reinforces again and again that the priority we give to prayer is a very reliable gauge of the nature of our relationship with God. And this whole last section of Ephesians, starting in chapter 4, describes the Christian life as life in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. And if we're in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in us, well then we will have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, open before us regularly, and we will, in the Spirit, be praying all prayer and supplication, alert in all perseverance, in every occasion for all the saints. So how important is prayer? The answer is not all important. According to St. Paul in Ephesians 6, the answer is all, 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 all important. Four times. Yeah, he tends toward this kind of hyperbole, but he brings it out when he wants to make a point. And the point is this. People who love Jesus find themselves in prayer. People who are growing in their faith cannot help but pray. And whenever God is doing great things, you can bet that you can trace it back to answered prayers of godly men and women and youth and children. So what are we going to do? I hope the answer is we are going to pray more. Here at Judson, that we will pray more. I'm hoping soon to uh, reconvene our own prayer meeting, which we've started and stopped and started and stopped for reasons outside of our control, but we need to be praying together once again. We need to be praying together whenever we get together. I know many of you are friends. When you get together, do you pray? Or do you leave that for Sunday morning? We need to be praying with our families. We need to be praying in, in my family more than we are. We often just pray before meals and not when there's something big going on, or even just daily, to ask God to guide us and protect us. We need to be praying people and a praying church. And when that happens, I think we will see God doing great things in our midst.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for a passage that, that brings to a close this discussion of armor of God. And, and Lord, I know that I'm going to take one more week on it, but as, we, as we've been looked at this over the past couple of months, I pray that we have seen again and again that the only way to have victory in our lives is to clothe ourselves in Christ, to rely entirely on Christ, to think that there is no way I in my own strength, in the flesh, in my own wisdom, my own power will make anything good happen. But if I rely on Christ, nothing is impossible. And Lord, here as we are reminded to take all of our concerns to you, to bring all of our praise and thanks and confession and supplication and petitions to you without ceasing, praying at all times for all the saints, for one another, for every need, with all perseverance. Lord, we think of the parable of the woman who went outside the judge's house, and even though he wasn't a, a very just judge, because she continually heckled and bothered him, he finally said, I'll give you justice. Lord, we can come to you again and again, knowing you are a just, perfectly just and holy God, and that when we bring you our requests again and again, we will not become a nuisance. You ask us, you ask us to come to you in prayer. Lord, how dare we not take advantage of this amazing, unspeakable privilege that we have. I pray that we would be drawn more and more into prayer, that, Lord, we would find that as a praying church, we will be far more rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ and far more zealous to see your name lifted up and people come to faith. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.